Hello and welcome to Behind the Ops. I'm your host, Kyle Oberholzer, and today we have our guest, J.P. Moniz. J.P., you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Kyle. Uh, my name is uh, Jean-Paul Menez. I've been working in sort of industrial automation for the last 20 years. I started my career off with a company called Messier Dowdy in Aerospace. Worked there for about eight years while I was going to college for electromechanical engineering technology and then did a little stint as a automation specialist for Rockwell Distributor and then did a little stint in automotive and then finally ended up with uh, chemical fuel manufacturing here in uh, sunny Coburg, Ontario, manufacturing nuclear fuel for the can-do market. Neat. Very interesting. So before we get to what you do now with nuclear fuel, how do you... Did you see any kind of changes or parallels between the kind of automation stuff that you were doing in aerospace and then going on to automotive? I think aerospace less. Uh, automotive, there were way more parallels. Uh, I would sit there and say the companies that we work with in automation relative to the business that we do now is pretty much you know, one-on-one similar to automotive, especially in the tier one market. I would sit there and say the company I used to work for was a division of Magnet. So a lot of their assembly lines, you know, we would be using the same supply base to to manufacture assembly Mm -hmm. lines in automotive as we would be in nuclear. So you've done all that. Now you've come to do a manufacturing of nuclear fuel. So what does the kind of stuff that you make look like? What is the stuff that you make daily? The end product that we manufacture nuclear fuel for the can-do reactor fleet. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Candy reactor design, but it's a heavy water reactor. So we use natural uranium in those reactors, and there's about 480 channels in a in a Candy reactor. They hold about 6,000 fuel bundles. They consume about, on average, 18 bundles a day per reactor. Hmm. You can go on the web and, and see what they look like, but they have a 37 individual fuel rods that are arranged in a circular bundle pattern. They're about 19 inches long. And all the elements are resistance welded together using end plates to hold them together. Neat. That's it's a lot of parts for one thing. How long does it take to, you know, make one bundle together? Uh, I don't know if I can tell you the official <laughs> That's time. That's fine. That's fine. Less than five minutes. How's that? <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Definitely not what I was expecting. Great. So then when you're making these guys, what kind of interesting parts of the manufacturing process can you bring up? I assume you use a fair amount of automation and stuff, don't you? Yeah, yeah. There's a how it's made video that they actually did that oh, shows no most of the the assembly process for fuel. But you know, no different than any other industries. We do a lot of re- resistance welding, a lot of vision inspection, a lot of robot picking, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, how it's made. That's actually really interesting. I definitely grew up watching those. Um, what was that like? Was, did they just come and film you guys normally one day, or was it you know really structured? Yeah, it was just, you know, they came in, they, they the directors sort of figured out what they wanted to sit there and shoot. And, you know, there's obviously, you know, can show this, can't show that or sort of thing, right? Ah, neat. That sounds fun. Getting to how it's made in Tulip. I want to be a star on that show. So as you've been going through your career, right, you've definitely seen a lot of improvements, I would imagine, in things like automation and robotics. How's your thoughts on these kind of things changed year over year throughout your career have you changed your viewpoint on how automation sits in manufacturing or places to improve with these kind of things to me i think it's more the evolution of it like you know back when i started it was you know you had your big mainstays whether it was rockwell or siemens or or other big automation vendors but it was very much proprietary 
you know, stick within their stack type thing. And now just through the sheer need of, of to be able to sit there and integrate automation components together to make assembly lines and whatnot, I think I think proliferation of, of open protocols, open open networks, open communication, open software APIs, open technology. To me, I think that's the, the biggest change in the industry. And, and to me, I, you know, I think it's still going through that change. I think the influences of, you know, open source software will ultimately, that type of movement, I guess, will ultimately influence automation as a whole over time. Right. Do you think that the uptake and adoption of, you know, systems like these kind of varies between, you know, aerospace automotive, fuel manufacturing. Are these industries kind of different in how they view these things or is it kind of homogenous at this point? To me, I think it's homogenous. I think it's more the culture of, let's say, the OT community and a little bit of the IT community as well. But I, I would probably put more of the responsibility on the OT community. I mean, even within that culture, you can, I mean, if you sit there and take a look and apply adoption, you know, the adoption curve to it, right? You know, you'll have your early adopters, right? But you also have your laggards within the community. So to me, I think fundamentally it's driven by that ad- adoption curve, right? Right. And then so that like the OTs are people that we work with a lot, right? Your operational engineers and your process engineers. What do you think is the relationship? So when you're working kind of in your daily job, how much do you interface with people, say, downstream with these kinds of systems? I don't know, people working on the shop floor, your um, operators versus people, say, upstream, your like, IT and networking professionals. And is that relationship notably different depending on what you're using? Well, to me, I think it's sort of a 50-50 split for, you know, who you're interfacing with. But I would sit there and say, you know, from the shop floor type view, they don't care what the systems are. They just want things to work and they want you to solve the problems, right? So they don't care what technology you're using or, or anything like that, right? Mm-hmm. And then on the IT side of things, it's probably just more being able to sit there and have discussions, talking, being able to relate use cases and problems and, and technology in the same manner. So, you know, if I call this an Apple, they understand what I'm calling an Apple sort of thing, right? Right, yeah. Is there anything that you think is being, you know, underserved right now by this kind of open automation sector growing tech market kind of thing? Anything that you'd want to see more of? Uh, to me, it's more software stacks opening up their architecture to be able to interoperate with other software stacks. To me, I think that's that's the biggest bang for the buck opportunity within the industry right now. Yeah. On a lower level, on the industrial protocol level, I mean, everybody sort of tries to play together and and whatnot, but sort of at the aggregation level, whether it's MES or SCADA or Storians or, you know, upper level software stacks like ERP and whatnot, to me, it's more opening up so those things can interoperate together a lot better. So I'm always curious if we're, you know, opening up these more protocols and having more, you know essentially user ways to access these kinds of systems. Is that an industry such as yours? Does that manifest pretty differently? Like I got to imagine making nuclear fuels at least somewhat regulated, right? Like is there extra hurdles you have to jump through to adopt these kind of things? Or how does this this sit in a place like yours? 
Well, I would sit there and say it's no different than other industry verticals. You would take take a look at pharma. I would sit there and say, I mean, nuclear is regulated. There's no doubt about it. But then you sit there and take a look at parallel verticals like pharma and whatnot. And I mean, they're just as highly regulated as we are. So, you know, the same types of tools that pharma uses are would be the same types of tools that we use, right? And there just might be different requirements, but it's at the end of the day, you're using the same tools to, to solve those problems. But to me, automation's always been sort of an evolution. So we sat there and integrated hardware at a very high level, right? So now it's time for the software to integrate. Right, yeah. Is there anything kind of interesting that you've worked on um, for this kind of automation level, I guess, that you can talk about as well? Uh, well, I mean, uh, we're no different than any other manufacturer. We're sitting there trying to monitor equipment performance and really depends on where you want to go, whether it's just the automation or the integration of automation into software systems. And to me, I mean, that's more of where the talking points are these days, right? And so whether it's with MES or, or doing traceability systems, tracking production and being able to provide that genealogy, I mean, we've done a ton of work in being able to integrate that directly all the way down to the machine level. So, you know, without human interaction. So being able to sit there and tie production orders into the equipment and tie, you know, lot traceability into the equipment while it's processing through the equipment and being able to provide that high level degree of traceability. That's probably been where a lot of the excitement is right now and being able to provide, you know, granular information on a hour by hour, day by day basis. And then I think a, a lot of it is is around trying to provide sort of that one single pane of glass for, I would say, shop floor personnel to be able to sit there and access and get information to be able to sit there and do their jobs effectively, whether it's equipment, asset information, or real-time information on equipment, or CAD drawings, CAD data on, on the equipment to be able to sit there and look at assemblies and diagnose things quicker and faster time to repair times, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. On this kind of trajectory, like in, you know, five years, what do you think is going to be the most different about the landscape of manufacturing versus, you know, where we're at today? I think it's going to be more focused on actual data-driven results, right? I mean, I would sit there and say my history in manufacturing, you know, looking back at the other companies uh, I worked with, you know, they were always sort of data-driven type companies, right? But you didn't have the the granularity or, or the full scope of what's going on. I think now with the tool sets that are out there and being able to get more fine granular information, that the ability to sit there and, and make those data-driven decisions are probably going to get you know, highlighted even more. Yeah, really interesting. Well, JP, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Kyle. Behind the Ops is brought to you by Tulip. Connect the people, machines, devices, and systems used in your production and logistics processes with our revolutionary no-code frontline operations platform. Visit tulip.co to learn more. This show is produced by Jasmine Chan and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, support the show by leaving us a quick rating or review. It really helps. If you have feedback for this or any other of our episodes, you can reach us at behindtheops at tulip.co. Thank you for listening to Behind the Ops. I'm Kyle Oberholzer, and we'll see you next time.